I'm Will Howell. I'm Anthony Fowler. And I'm Viola Giuda, and this is not another politics podcast. On our show, Viola, we've been talking for a long time about, you know, the capacity of average citizens to reason, the extent to which the polarization that we observe at the elite level, I mean, I think it's pretty indisputable that Republicans and Democrats in Congress, for instance, are polarized today in ways that they have not, decidedly have not been in the past, but whether or not that reflects at a deeper level polarization within the mass public. And our co-host, Anthony, has views about the matter, but he also has scholarship about the matter. And we get to engage him today uh, on just that. Yeah, so we talked a lot about the fact that despite this entire discussion that we have in the media about how the world is polarized and how, for some reason, very extreme candidates uh, get elected, there is scholarship that shows that actually voters seem to prefer moderate candidates. Uh, so a natural question would be, why is that the case? Is it that voters are moderates themselves? And there are a lot of claims being made, both in research and, and, and in the public discussion, that no, voters are equally polarized and, you know, you can just open Twitter. <laughs> You're immediately convinced of that. So yes, Anthony uh, has research in which he asks exactly this question. Can we gain some understanding of voters' polarization from looking at their server responses? I found his findings uh, super fascinating and somewhat reassuring. Yeah, me too. So, Anthony, you've got this paper with, I mean, a small army of co-authors, Seth Hill. Let's read them into the record. Seth Hill, Jeff Lewis, Chris Dasanovich, Lynn Vavrick, and Chris Warshaw, called Moderates. There it is. That's it. It's very sort of simple <laughs> and to the point. But you're doing something different from maybe what we might think of as being the straightforward thing, which is to sort of ask people straight out on the seven-port ideology scale, you know, where do you land on, you know, liberal to conservative, and then just simply report out, hey, this percentage of people said moderate themselves. You're looking at people's responses to binary uh, questions on lots of policy items and backing out of that estimates of where they lie ideologically. Ease us into the data that you're using and, and, and the estimation techniques that you're you're employing. Great, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Great to be here. <laughs> Always yes. a pleasure. It's, an <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really nice to be on the other, the other end of this sometimes. It's kind, of, it's kind of fun. So some of the intellectual history is interesting. So there have been a lot of people who have just collected lots of survey data and they've done what seem like the sort of obvious things to do. Like let's average together people's issue positions on a range of issues. So let's, we'll ask them a bunch of policy questions, take their average ideology, on average are you liberal conservative in the middle, and when you do that you get kind of a unimodal distribution where most people seem to be in the middle. Most people are to the right of Nancy Pelosi and to the left of Mitch McConnell. There is a critique of, the, of that which I think was a very good critique by David Brockman. How do you know that the people, the person who is on average a moderate they might not actually be all that moderate on any given policy position. It might be that they're an extreme liberal on abortion and an extreme conservative on taxes. But much in, much in line with what Converse said, maybe Converse was right that people are totally idiosyncratic and their, their positions are not well constrained or ordered on some kind of ideological dimension. And so when you say, oh look, most people are moderate, that doesn't necessarily mean that on any given issue most people are moderate. It might just mean that, that averaging across the issues, people are in the middle because they're not constrained like Converse said. Even though they're never in the middle in, right. when it comes right. to any particular policy Which issue. It could be, right? Theoretically, yeah. it's certainly possible, right? And so we thought, what's a good way of responding to that critique? For someone who's, whose ideology is in the middle, 
are they actually a moderate, or are they just one of these conflicted extremists with, with lots of crazy views on the other side? Or maybe the other possibility is they're actually just not even paying attention to the survey. They're just going through the survey as quickly as possible, giving kind of inattentive, random answers. And on average, they're going to look like they're moderate because there's, there's kind of no meaning in their answers. Okay, okay. So, so but, but let's, you just identified three types of voters that are, you're, that are going to run through this paper. They are genuine moderates. They're people who assume moderate positions. That's one kind of type of voter. Another type of voter would be somebody who just assumes positions in ways that are really idiosyncratic. They're uncorrelated. Their views are uncorrelated across issues. And it may be that then when you average them up, they appear moderate, but they're not really moderate. They're just all over the, all over the map. And then you've got this third group of voters, which are people who are just flipping coins. They're not paying attention. When, when you give them a whole bunch of questions in the context of a survey, they're just checking boxes. And so they have really no views whatsoever, at least no views that are being recorded by the survey. And so the, the move that you're going to make is try to differentiate these three types. That's exactly right. We're going to try to come up with a way of figuring out who fits into those different camps using the same kind of existing survey data that we all have, which is people answer a bunch of binary questions, right? I ask you, you know, are you, are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? Do you want to raise taxes or lower taxes? And, and, and at first glance, you might think there's not a whole lot you can do with those binary questions. How do I figure out if you're moderate if I only give you two options, right? There's no, there's no obviously moderate position. You can either give the conservative position or the liberal position. If you are moderate, we should be able to figure out whether you're moderate, whether you're genuinely a moderate, or whether you're, kind of, you're the kind of person who, whose views are well summarized by a single ideological dimension, you just happen to be in the middle. One, one, one sign that you are that kind of moderate is that you'll give the conservative answer when the question's kind of slightly geared toward the conservative answer, in the sense that, you know, if, okay, if I ask you, would you like to raise the minimum wage to $9 an hour? If you're a moderate and you think the minimum wage should be $11 an hour, you're going to say yes to that question. But if I ask you, would you like to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour? You're going to say no to that question. And so our thought is by compiling lots of different, if we have lots of these binary policy questions, we can infer who's genuinely a moderate and who's just giving random answers or who's giving some other pattern of answers by seeing which questions do you give the conservative answer and which questions do you give the liberal answer. And essentially the main idea, you know, essentially the key prediction is if you are one of these genuine moderates, what we call a Downsian moderate after, after Anthony Downs who kind of wrote down one of these spatial models of every voters all being on a line, you should be more likely to give the conservative answer as the conservative answer becomes generally more popular among other people. Whereas if you're just, if it's completely random, then I shouldn't be able to predict when you give the conservative or liberal answer. And so that's, that's the key, that's kind of the key identifying insight there. So can you help us think about how you figure out which questions are more conservative and which ones are less? Yes, I mean, we don't do any substantive, we don't use our judgment in making that decision. We do some validations afterwards. So after we've done our estimation, we'll, we actually do that same kind of exercise with minimum wage questions. And we're like, okay, the, the people we're identifying as moderate should be the people who say no to the $15 minimum wage, but yes to the $9 minimum wage. And that turns out to be true. So that's, that's good. That's reassuring. But in our, in our main estimation, we just let the data speak for itself. So we have these three categories of people, and we'll talk, we can talk more about that, but we have what we call Downsians, who are survey respondents whose positions appear to be you know, they appear to be consistent with kind of a single dimensional model. And then we have, we have people who we call 
Conversians, after Phil Converse, after the chapter that we read. I think and maybe, the, is this the first the, time conversion has been used? I mean, that was a, maybe the most clever I, thing in the I paper. I think so, yes. Right? Converse has been cited so, a billion times. Yes. Has it ever been referred to as a convert? <laughs> one, yeah, to be called a conversion. Okay, so go ahead. Yes, I'm not sure if we would make Converse proud, but but uh, but in any case, we you know, the conversions are essentially a catch-all category of people who they have real views, but they're just not, they're not constrained by the single ideological dimension. They're kind of all over the map. And then we have a third category of people that we just call inattentive people whose answers are completely unpredictable, as, as if completely random, as if they're not even paying attention to the survey question. So either they have no views at all, or they just don't care about surveys and they're going through as quickly as possible. So we have these three categories. And essentially, to answer Viola's question, the way that we can leverage these questions and identify who are the genuine moderates versus who are the conversions or inattentives is, if a conservative answer is more popular among other Downsians, then you, as a, if you really are a genuine moderate, you should be more likely to give that conservative answer. The model does two things. The, models, the model essentially tries to say, given your pattern of responses, are you more likely to be a Downsian? Are you more likely to be a Conversian? Or an inattentive respondent? And then, if you are a Downsian, or for everybody, you know, if they were in the scenario where they were a Downsian, what's their estimated ideology on some line? Are they are they a far far left liberal? Are they a far right conservative? Are they somewhere in the middle? We'll get a kind of a continuous a continuous number that summarizes the the ideology for that person if they are a Downsian. So, so is it fair to say that you basically look at questions, and if most of the people who appear to be Downsian and leaning uh, leftist answer a particular question in a liberal way? Uh, then you will classify this question as more liberal. And if they answer this question like a little bit more in a mixed way, then you would classify this question as less liberal. And in this way, you can then identify who is... Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So every question, there's, there's a, essentially in the model, there's a cut point for every question that says, you know, our, you know, our prediction is that if your ideology is to the left of this, you'll vote in the liberal way. If your ideology is to the right of this, you'll vote in the conservative way. And those cut points are largely determined by you know, how popular are these responses among different kinds of people. So it is, it's not, it, I mean, I understand it's not very intuitive. It's a little bit hard to think about all of it happening simultaneously. And we actually came to this in the kind of, in the simple way first. We sort of started doing the very simple thing of like, okay, you know, let's, let's not have the mixture model and all the, let's, let's just test some simple predictions. Like, if these people really are moderates, we should see that they're more likely to give the conservative response when the conservative response seems to be the more popular response. And then we, so we kind of did a lot of things like that. And then eventually we worked our way to what we have now, which is this kind of mixture model where we're simultaneously estimating all of this stuff together. But it's not that different from, you know, what people do when they're studying members of Congress and trying to estimate their ideology. It's just assumed for members of Congress that all of them are Downsians and we just do the simple, the simple kind of IRT thing and we say, oh, this member of Congress is is way over here, this member of Congress is way over here. I think that's less controversial for members of Congress because I think the idea of a conflicted extremist in Congress is not as, but I'm sure there are cases in Congress too where somebody, you know, Ron Paul was a famous example of a member of Congress who was extremely conservative on most issues, but then actually voted with the liberals on foreign policy. You know, the squad right now in Congress, they're, they're extremely liberal on a lot of things, but then they vote against the Democratic majority on things where they're, sometimes they're upset because the proposal's not too, we just saw an example of this, the proposal's not, not liberal enough, and so they vote no. And so their responses don't really, you know, don't really fit into the model very well. And so we're essentially trying to, you know, for the voters, we're trying to say how many of them seem to fit into this one-dimensional model and how many, how many fit into these other categories, like, like Converse said they should. I mean, it's interesting because you're relying upon, as your inputs, responses to binary survey questions, which we usually lament for throwing out all kinds of information, right? But 
your responses to say you want to look at sort of switching in responses as a function of what the options are that are put before you um, in these binary questions. You note in the paper that you, know, you need at least, what, like 20 of these questions? Like you need enough of them in order to be able to, to perform this exercise. Are there other kinds of concerns that we ought to have? That is, you know, if all of the binary, you can imagine being given 20 options and they're all of the form, you know, do you want to eliminate the minimum wage or do you want to, you know, you give sort of these crazy extreme options. Do we need to think about there being some underlying variability uh, across Yes, uh, right. Yes, definitely. Across yes. the ideological spectrum, in, in, so that you can draw distinctions between people. What, 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 do you, what do we know about that? Yes, absolutely. So we need, yeah, we need, we need lots of questions for this to work. Obviously, like I mean, it's the simple example. If I just give you one question, you have no idea. If, right, everyone just looks like a liberal or a conservative, and there's no way of distinguishing anything. So we need, we need at least, you know, on the order of twenty questions, something like that. But you're right. You also you don't just need a lot of questions. What you really want are, are a, a lot of questions with different cut yes. points across the questions, such that if everybody is a Downsian, you'll get different sets of people answering in the liberal or conservative direction. If if every question was designed, if if the survey researchers were like, how can we ask this question so that we cleanly divide half the people will be on one side and half the people will be on the other side, that won't give us a lot of variation to actually figure out how many people are really moderate versus versus liberal versus conservative versus conversions. So yes, you want some kind of variation. I think it's an unfortunate feature for us, which is that a lot of survey, you know, survey researchers don't often ask questions where they think only 15% of people are going to answer in this way because they would think, oh, that's a bad question. What we want is a question that kind of neatly divides the liberals and the conservatives. A typical survey question is, do, would you want to raise the minimum wage to $12? And that happens to be exactly $12 is just about exactly the point where you get like, you know, half and half on one side or the other. We don't, we don't very often ask, would you like to eradicate the minimum wage entirely? Because we just think, oh, that's not a very informative question. You would get a ton of people saying yes to that answer. But that would actually be good for our purposes if we asked a wider variety of these questions. It also turns out that the CCS, which is the main data source that we use, they also tend to ask questions that get, the liberal answer is more is more popular for whatever reason. It could be you know a bunch of liberal academics are asking the question and they're trying to make liberal policies look popular, and so that might you know that might be another feature of this as well. And so that's unfortunate. What we really want is a lot of questions and a lot of different kinds of questions that separate people in different places. So. You look at voters and you see whether they could be placed on this ideological line, and some of them can, and between them you can distinguish whether they are consistently giving uh, left-wing or right-wing answers, or perhaps they are giving a mixture of answers. And then you have these other people that cannot be placed on the ideological line, and you still want to classify them uh, somehow. You, you want to distinguish between the people who really hold genuine positions, but but they are just not classified on one dimension, and people who are just answering at random or have no positions that they really can think of, so they are just guessing what position they might have, but they don't reflect really any ideology. How do you differentiate between those two groups? That's a good question. We do it in, in maybe, maybe in a way that's not satisfying, but we say, look, if you were truly guessing randomly, then our model of your responses is that you are equally likely to give the liberal or conservative answer on any question. It's as if you're flipping a fair coin every time. So we have, so that's, that's our model of you. If you really are inattentive or you have no position, then there's essentially be no way for us to predict how you answer a given question. The fact that you gave a liberal answer to this question shouldn't, shouldn't help me predict whether you're going to give a liberal or conservative answer to the second question. For the conversions, we have a similar model, but we essentially imagine, suppose there's a set of people out there who they have real positions. They really, some of them, they, some, some proposals, some policy proposals are really more popular for them than others, but it's not related to this ideological dimension at all. 
And so essentially what we imagine for those, we, our model for those people is that they're flipping a weighted coin. So on this, you know, this question, there's, you know, 85% of them like this proposal and another question, 35% of them like this proposal and so forth, but it's as if they're flipping weighted coins each time. And so you can't, you can't predict for any, you know, for any one of these conversions, some of them are going to like this proposal a little bit more than others, but there's still not a clear rhyme or reason here. It's not like, it's not like you can all fit them on a line and say, okay, these people are liberal and these people are conservative, these people are moderate. So that's kind of our modeling of the conversions. They're flipping, they're basically flipping weighted coins. They have real positions, but those positions don't, don't conform to some spatial model where we easily classify them as liberal, conservative, or moderate. So as you've guessed, I'm a little bit dissatisfied with this approach. So, so you just sure, mentioned a yeah. second ago, and, and maybe I misunderstood you, but you've mentioned that, that somehow the questions that, uh, the questions are usually not worded at random. There's some bias of the researcher that seems to be shining through. So perhaps it is the case that questions are phrased in such a way that if you keep on responding yes, yes, yes to the questions, you are going to look like a liberal on average. Uh, so perhaps those people who have 85% probability of responding in a liberal way are indeed those people who are just randomly checking yes, yes, yes. Not randomly, but they are just checking yes, 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 yes because they don't know uh -huh, what to check. Uh -huh. No, that's a good point. Uh, that's a good point. If there, was, if there was some group of people that just always picked the first option on the survey or something like that, or they always picked the option with the fewest words or whatever, you know, then yes, I think then, then those people would be most likely classified as conversions by our approach. And, and, and your thought is the right model, the right, the right classification for them would be the inattentive model. Those people, they are just answering quickly. They don't have real position. So I think you're right. I think it's easy for the conversion category to potentially pick up people who are, don't have very strong views and just answering. They're not answering completely randomly, but they're answering in some very idiosyncratic way. I mean, that is in fact the model of conversions is they're answering in this very idiosyncratic, hard to predict way, but it's not completely 50-50. But you're, you're right, I think. The conversions, yeah, I think it'd be wrong to say these conversions are, they don't, they could be politically sophisticated. A lot of them might very well be politically sophisticated. They might be genuinely liberal on abortion and genuinely conservative on taxes, and that might be perfectly coherent in their minds, um, and they're just expressing that to you. But it might also be that they're kind of not paying close attention, but they don't quite, quite come out as inattentive because there's some, there's some rhyme or reason to their answers that's just not related to anything meaningful in the political world. And conversely, pun intended, you can say that those who answer questions with probably 50-50, at least it looks like they answer just 50% of the time in a liberal way and 50% of the time in a conservative way, they could genuinely hold those positions. 50% of the time they have this liberal position, 50% of the time they have this conservative position. So that is, I mean, that is extremely unlikely because of the fact that we have all these questions with these different cut points. So of course, I mean, yes, what are the odds that your legitimate position on these questions just so happens to look like it's completely random with enough questions? I mean, if we only had a few questions, sure, we'd get some false positives, but I think if we have more than 20 questions, it is extremely unlikely that you could really be answering in some meaningful way, but come out looking like you're completely, you know, I mean, it's certainly possible. It's certainly possible that you just don't fit one of the other models very well. You have some, there is some rhyme or reason you don't fit one of the models very well, but it's pretty unlikely. And I think we have some validations that suggest that that, that does look like it's pretty unlikely. So for example, one of the, one of the things we do is with this validation is we actually, yeah, there, there actually was, there actually was a validation question we, we were we were able to look at, which is, do you, they asked the same set of people, do you want to raise the minimum wage to $15? And, for, and those same people also were asked at a different point in the survey, would you like to eliminate the minimum wage entirely? And obviously you'd think 
I mean, unless you have very strange preferences, very few people should be paying attention and saying yes to both of those questions, right? You either, if you want to raise it, if you want $15, you probably don't want to eliminate it. Unless you, you're like, the status quo is terrible. And, right, I mean, it's, you, if you have like some really Unless you want to raise it to $15 right. because you think that's um, going to right. lead, more, more likely to lead to its elimination. Right. But I agree with yes. you, that's a crazy position. So. And so almost nobody in our surveys says yes to both of those questions. We want $15 and we want to eliminate it. Um, except the people we do end up classifying as inattentive, and it's about one-fourth of the inattentive people that answer yes to that, which is what you would expect if these people really were essentially answering at random. So, so I think, I, I don't think they're, you know, the inattentive category, we haven't actually said what the results are. There aren't a lot of these people in the survey. Yeah, so let's, let's, talk, think, about the, let's yeah. talk about the, the results. So, so I see how you can, you can actually use this extra validation to bounce sort of the number of people that fall into each category. So, so how many moderates do we have? How many Dowsians do we have? So yeah, so we have these three categories, Downsian, Conversian, Inattentive. What we find on average across all the surveys is about 73% are Downsian, about 21% are Conversian, and about 6.5% are Inattentive. So most, the vast majority of these survey respondents are people who are well explained by the single, single ideological dimension. Now among those Downsians, you could ask how many of them are extreme liberals, extreme conservatives, how many of them are in the middle. We essentially get, I mean, it's it's... It's somewhat arbitrary how you know how you classify them because we're getting a continuous number for them. But one thing you clearly see is you get essentially a normal distribution of these ideologies. You get this unimodal distribution with most of the mass in the middle. If you did try to make some, we don't explicitly do this, but if you tried to make some effort to say, let's look at their pattern of responses and see how many of these people are to the right of Nancy Pelosi and how many of these people are to the left of Mitch McConnell, it's virtually everybody. Uh, but you know, but yes, the vast majority of people seem to be, you know, seem to be in the middle. And there aren't like these strong polls out there on the far left and the far right, like you might think if you just watch cable news. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. So these are two big findings, right? One finding is there's a coherence to people's views that you would miss if you read Phil Converse and that you would miss if you, you got onto Twitter and you saw all the crazy things that people were saying, right? So the story that we tell that voters are inattentive and uh, naive and unsophisticated, you're pushing back on. And it's worth noting that, I mean, there's only 6% that fit in that inattentive category. That's actually an upper bound on the number of people who have no views because there's some people presumably who really do have views but they just can't be bothered with this survey. And so they're just checking things to get through it really quickly, right? So it looks like, no, there is some structure. It might be one-dimensional or it might be multi-dimensional, depending upon whether or not you're a Downsian or a Conversian, but that there's real structure to be had in people's views. And that then when you look within that structure for the subset of people who are Downsians, who are working on a single dimension, the, the, the mass is concentrated in the middle. The, the moderates seem to, to win out, which we wouldn't, again, expect if we looked at, if we revisited Viola's Twitter account and not just looked at the crazy things that people were saying, but to how extreme everybody looks, right? You know, all the voices in the media and, and all the legislators in Congress 
are occupying the extremes, but the voters appear to be sitting squarely in the middle. That's right. That's exactly right. That would essentially be my response to this, the converse claim that we talked about earlier, which is why does it look like people give inconsistent answers to different policy questions? Why does it look like there are these people who are, they're liberal on abortion and they're conservative on taxes and they're liberal on foreign policy and so on? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Maybe these people aren't ideologically constrained. And our answer would be, no, these people are perfectly, have perfectly coherent views that actually fit onto the normal left-right dimension that we usually think of. They just happen to be in the middle. And had you asked, and had you asked some of these questions a slightly different way, you would have found that the people who are liberal on foreign policy are now conservative on foreign policy because their actual position is somewhere in the middle. And and that's probably true for the vast majority of Americans that on any given issue, most of them are most of them are in the middle. That's, that doesn't mean that they don't have real positions. It doesn't mean that they're incoherent. It just means they they understand the arguments on both sides and they think the minimum wage should probably be about twelve dollars. It shouldn't be fifteen dollars and it shouldn't be seven dollars. I was very surprised, positively surprised by these findings. I think I would be happy if you found that, you know, 50% of the people or 40% of the people are really sophisticated and, and can, you know, understand whether the questions are liberal or conservatives and hold views that somehow can be nicely classified on this ideological spectrum. So because you found 70% of them, I think this is actually great news. So even if the remaining 30% are completely random, even if you're sort of attempt to differentiate between those who tr hold true views and those who are just inattentive, even if they're all inattentive. In my book, this is a great finding for, for you know, democracy and for, for, for the voter. Like, I think 70% of the people being clear on what their ideology is and, and understanding what the questions are asking, I think that's actually a pretty big number. So, so I'm, I'm very positively surprised. You also do something with this finding. You try to call, you try to see who those people are and who what they do. And um, tell us more about this. Sure. So we have some just simple descriptive findings in the paper. So we say, okay, we've got these different categories of people. Let's let's just crudely say there's five kinds of people that we've kind of identified in these surveys. We've identified, you know, liberals, moderates, and conservatives. So among the Downsians, and then we've also we've also identified people who are inattentive and people who are these who are conversion. And so we might just ask kind of descriptively, what are, some, what are some interesting patterns? What are some things that they, you know, so we look at things like how interested do they say they are in politics? How much do they know about politics? Do they read political news a lot? Do they vote in elections? Are they registered? Things like that. And a lot of the results are kind of what you'd expect, which is the liberals and the conservatives probably are much higher on all those dimensions. They vote more. They're more, more likely to be registered to vote. They pay more attention to politics. They consume more news. But it's not zero for the moderates. The moderates still participate in politics. They still vote. And also, as you'd expect, the moderates and the conversions are much more likely to change their party they're supporting between elections. So they were much more likely to, for example, switch from Obama to Trump or to switch from having voted from Romney to Clinton. So, you know, so, so these, this, this group of people, they're, even though we, we often don't talk about them a lot in American politics, we, when an election rolls around, we don't often think about, like, sometimes we think about the swing voter, but, you know, that's, that's a big group of people, actually. Those people in the middle with moderate positions who could potentially be persuaded to vote for either party turns out to be a very large group of people, and they're especially electorally consequential. So we do that kind of simple descriptive thing, and, and a lot of those results kind of go in the, in the expected direction. And then we do some other we do some other things that are maybe a little bit you know a little bit more technical, which is we take these individuals, we connect our classifications of them to their actual vote choices in real elections. So in these same CCS surveys, they ask people, who did you vote for? Did you vote? And and if you voted, who did you vote for in a recent congressional race? And then we look at features of those races. So we connect that with with features of these candidates. Some of these candidates are are more moderate, some are more extreme, some of them are incumbents, some of them have more experience. And we find a lot of things that you might expect, which is the people we classify as moderate 
are in fact pretty electorally consequential in elections. They're more likely to switch their vote choices between Democrats and Republicans. Their vote choices are more responsive to the ideology of the candidates. So if you have a particularly moderate Democrat and or a particularly extreme Republican, then in general, the, the Democrat's gonna do better in the election. And that's particularly true for the moderates. And the same thing for incumbency. The moderates are more responsive to incumbency. They're also more responsive to prior experience of the candidates. And so it looks like even though the moderates you know, we might, we might not talk about them a lot, and even though they actually vote at lower rates than liberals or conservatives, they're actually the most electorally consequential group. We also find that the conversions are also a pretty electorally con consequential group. Even if they don't neatly fit on that ideological line, it's still the case that kind of on average, their positions are kind of in the middle. And so they sometimes prefer Democrats, they sometimes prefer Republicans, and they also vote more or less as if they were moderate. They end up voting, they end up voting for the more moderate candidate on average. They end up voting for the more experienced candidate on average. And so they're also a pretty electorally consequential group, even if, even if they don't neatly fit on the line like the, like the Downsian moderates do. So I would like to go back to something that you said um, a second ago, where you said that people uh, claim that self-identification on this moderate, conservative, uh, liberal scale is, is meaningless because most of the moderates, most of the people that identify themselves as moderates actually end up always voting for either Democrat or Republican. So the, 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 vote, the number of voters uh, who actually switch uh, the identity of the party for which they vote between elections is, is teeny tiny. So people conclude there's a teeny tiny fraction of moderates. And what you're saying is... Well, no, if we use a different measure of, uh, of moderation, we find that there are a lot of moderates. And the fact that we observe only very few of them switching uh, the votes is because of, of the equilibrium in the electoral competition game, because the candidates position themselves in such a way that some of the moderates end up voting for the same party over and over again. But that does not mean that if we switched the candidates a little bit, if we shifted them to the left or to the right, we wouldn't actually see large swings. Is that a fair... Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think that's no, that's exactly right. Yes, yeah, that's true. Most people in general don't switch their votes between parties in presidential elections, partly because the main party platforms don't change very often. And so you might lean toward the Democrats, but you might barely lean toward the Democrats, and you'll find yourself barely leaning toward the Democrats in multiple consecutive elections. So it wasn't a lot of people that switched from, you know, who voted for Obama in 2012 and then switched to Trump in 2016. But in our in our surveys, it looks like among the people that we classify as Downsian moderates, almost 6% of them did so. That's not, you know, that's certainly, that's still, still a small fraction of all of the voters, but that's a, that's a very important fraction of people that was probably decisive for the election. So they're an interesting group. On the one hand, they pay less attention to politics. They're less involved. They're less politically active. But on the other hand, there are quite a few of them. They're responsive to characteristics of candidates like their experience, their incumbency, the particular ideological positions they assume, apart from their partisan identification, in ways that people at the extremes are not. Um, and in that sense, they're consequential for the outcomes of elections in ways that people at the extremes are not. So you're pushing back against the notion that there are very few of them and they don't much matter because everything is driven by the extremes of our politics. It's that, no, there are actually quite a few of them and what hangs in the balance when we think about electoral outcomes are their assessments, even if their assessments are less informed than are people at the extremes. There's still structure to their views. There's still content to their views. And, and that's what produces a President Obama or a President Trump or a President Biden at the, at the end of an election. And I think this 
ties to, to a discussion we had uh, a few episodes ago. So it might be that moderates uh, don't show up to vote in such large numbers, or at least not in, in numbers equal to those who are on the extremes, because, you know, if they're presented with more extreme candidates and they are in the middle, they, they are not really, you know, they don't really have a strong preference for one extremist versus another extremist, while the extremist, extremist voters do. But um, when presented with a moderate candidate, they actually have more incentives to show up and vote because they, you know, then they get someone with views close to their views. And, and that might explain what we have seen in Andy Hall's work, that, that when moderates run, they do uh, tend to win. But when they don't, then perhaps, you know, we, we moderates don't show up to vote because, you know, the stakes are, the stakes are high, but the choices are bad. So we don't really have a meaningful choice to make. Yes, I agree with that completely. The same kind of model that Andy Hall talks about with moderate candidates running, you could essentially apply that to voting too. Exactly. It's obviously everything, make everything smaller. The cost is a little bit smaller, but also the, the, the benefits are, are, you know, but yeah, do the same, the same kind of model and say, if you're, if you're a moderate, I don't really like Joe Biden and I don't really like Donald Trump. They're both too extreme for me, but in different directions, you might just stay home and not vote. And the fact that you're not voting is not, it doesn't mean that your views aren't important or you shouldn't be represented. It just means I don't think either candidate's doing a very good job. And there could be a good argument there for, just like Andy Hall says, we should try to lower the cost of running so that we get more moderates in the political sphere. You can make the same argument that we should lower the cost of voting to get more moderates voting in elections. And maybe that would also change, change the political system a little bit. But it's, it is striking that, nonetheless, so much of our, our elite-level politics are driven by the extremes, and there's this lack of representation. I mean, Andy has... Uh, a set of explanations for why people aren't, aren't running, and yet you come forward and you say, but this is where all the mass is. This is where most of the voters are. They're there to be had, right? And yet, still, our elite-level politics are driven by relative extremists. Yeah, that's, I mean, that makes, that makes Andy's results all the more striking. If, if anyone's listening who's like a party leader, and they read Andy's book, and they were like, but where will I find these moderate people? They're there. They're, in fact, the majority of Americans. In fact, if you just go pick someone on the street at random, there's a pretty good chance that they are, in fact, one of those people. Not to say that you should pick, you know, our political leaders completely at random, but you can find them. They're just not showing up to your, you know, to your party meetings. And they're not on your Twitter feed. So, I, I wonder, I mean, hmm. That leaves us with a, a bit of a puzzle about how inattention to moderates can persist in a competitive political environment. I, I wonder, I mean, the way that you're characterizing moderation and the way that we're quite accustomed to, I mean, there's, a, there's reason to do this, is, is by reference to the positions that people take. You can imagine thinking about this somewhat differently. You know, what drives people's evaluation of candidates is concerns about values, say, which we could think of as being apart from whether or not you're for or against a minimum wage set at a particular dollar amount. But it's that, no, this is the kind of person who really stands up for America unapologetically. And, and I wonder if, if we had such data, we were to do some similar kind of exercise, whether or not we would find the same things that you do in this paper. Not by, again, by reference to cut points on particular policy positions, but evaluations of people's values and sensibilities, their sense that uh, we have an obligation to the poor generally, or that, you know, equality is a central uh, and it, and it, uh, value that defines us as Americans, or well, we, American exceptionalism. I mean, at, at this kind of level, I think there's a lot of 
It's where a lot of politics plays out. And it would be interesting. I guess I would find it interesting if we saw something different there, that people sort of drifted more to a, a kind of a bimodal distribution at, at that sort of level. I've got no data to support that, but it's a, it's it all again, all the data that are carrying through here has to do with estimations of people's it's aggregate measures of people's policy views on individual policy items. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought much about that. So your, your conjecture is that if we did have some good continuous measure of your views on America accept, American exceptionalism or something like that, that we would actually find more polarization on that. I don't know. I, I'd be interested to know. Like, I think that's what stands right behind a lot of the vitriol that we see, again, on Viola's Twitter account. It's not just that people are taking, the opposition is taking crazy views on individual items. It's this sense that, no, the opposition, is, and so one answer, right, one answer, I think your answer, the answer that comes out of this paper is, no, no, those are just a subset of Americans. Like, those are, those are the crazy, those, the, the people who are, who are occupying the extremes, and, they're, and they, they are disproportionately vocally represented in our, our on our Twitter feed. That would be my guess. That would be my guess. I mean, there's plenty of vitriol on some of these policies that we did ask about, right? So if there's plenty of vitriol on questions regarding, you know, abortion mm -hmm. and, and climate change. And, and yet, nevertheless, most Americans are probably fairly moderate on those policies as well. So, so I'm not sure. I mean, if we did have a good way of continuously measuring ex American exceptionalism, I'm sure, I'm sure the vast majority of Americans would say, you know, Donald Trump is is pretty extreme on this front, but also, you know, I mean, I think I think they would say, yeah, I think there's 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 good arguments on both sides, and I'm probably somewhere in the middle. And if I had to pick what we should do, it's it's not it's not what either side wants wants to do. And I think I think you know I agree with what Anthony is saying that probably people who ha who are extreme are overrepresented in the media and on Twitter. Like they are vocal because they are extreme. But it's also that we become more vocal in this kind of uh, casual discourse. Like I see I see it in myself that when you are having just a casual conversation, like you have this, this stronger reactions to some people disagreeing with you and then you, you tend to, somehow your, your mind gets wrapped up about how, how the other person has their own position and so on and you then exaggerate your position. But no, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I think that we, we have true. this, you know, like we, we, we see this article yeah. about something that we disagree with and, and then we go to the other extreme, we say how horrible the other side is and so on without even thinking that, well, our position on this issue is actually quite moderate and, and we wouldn't want to go in the other direction. So, um, you know, perhaps... That's funny. My, my, my experience is almost the opposite. That, <laughs> like when you talk to, like if you, ha if you have a sit-down conversation with a friend, I mean, sure, I can imagine. Yeah, Twitter like, is not shouting, a sit-down conversation. At each other, <laughs> but if you actually had an in-person conversation with another person who might have very different views from you, you find you find more common ground than you would think, and you're like, okay, no, you're making some reasonable arguments, and and they think, oh, you're making some reasonable arguments, and maybe you end up even coming toward each other a little bit. Um, yeah, but Twitter is Twitter sure is not Twitter is not this conversation, yes. and and yes, I yes. and I think you know, yes, when you and I are having conversations in uh, in our lunchroom, that's one thing, and when someone posts on Twitter and you have only I don't know how many two hundred eighty uh, <laughs> characters to respond, I, I think I think it's a little bit of a different story. I think, it's, I think this is important. It's an important point that moderates observed in the wild may not appear as especially moderate. That is, what you're doing in the context of these surveys or in the kinds of conversations that you're imagining, Anthony's, you're saying, okay, let's step back from it all and let's just see what you think, right? But then when you put, you know, drop them into a rally or drop them into 
uh, a live political conversation, do they then stand up for their moderate views and say, hey, wait, both sides have something to say? Or do they it's gravitate to one versus so. other? Well, that's just it. It's and never so, fun to say, you know, like, oh, let's moderate. Let's, 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 you know, let's all agree. No, it's always fun to say, hey, I'm going to root for my team. Who, who is on my team? Like, it's, it's just more fun. Anthony, do you, are you allowed a bottom line? You, your bottom line is the paper itself, but have you taken away any, sure. any sort of big lessons that aren't expressly sort of laid out in the paper? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, I'd love to have a bottom line of my own paper. No, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, it's certainly, um, I think working on this project, cause I didn't know how, you know, how these results were going to go, because I actually found the the kind of Brockman argument, you know, somewhat persuasive in the sense that theoretically it's certainly possible that there are lots of these conflicted extremists out there. And I came away from this thinking that's an interesting possibility, but there just aren't a lot of those people. And I came maybe was surprised, like you guys are, that there are so many people that do fit into this kind of single-dimensional model. So that's I think that's an interesting thing that has certainly changed the way that I think about politics. I probably, in general, think we should answer we should stop doing as many of these binary policy questions, especially because there are probably so many people who are kind of on the fence. And so what we're getting is more or less we're getting a lot of noise, right? And if instead we ask, and you know, Will, you and I do this in one of our papers, we just ask more continuous versions of the question. We say, not not do you support do you support the latest infrastructure proposal, but how much do you think we should be spending on this infrastructure package? And give people an opportunity to answer continuously. And you find that actually you get all kinds of reasonable responses where there's a lot of people, you know, in the middle that think, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the current proposal is too much, but also I don't want to spend zero and it's probably somewhere in between. So I think one, we should maybe change the way we conduct research and just come up with more creative ways of eliciting people's opinions and appreciate the fact that most people are in the middle. And two, I think it probably also changes the way that we that we interpret modern American politics. And we, I mean, I wonder if if one one benefit of this is that we stop we we ignore some of the loud people on Twitter because we appreciate that they are in fact a tiny fraction of Americans. Or the possibility that Viola laid out, which is that the some of those people on Twitter are in fact moderate, but they're having a good a good old time, right? What about you, you Viola? Yeah, I think this paper, together with a few other episodes that we have here and a few other papers that we've covered here, makes me really think that we should put to rest this, this kind of notion that we live in a highly polarized society where all that matters is whether my team wins or loses, that the people are actually moderate uh, and, and they want moderate, reasonable, efficient policies. And, and instead, we should focus more on why do we see this kind of polarization in the U.S. Congress, this kind of gridlock in the U.S. Congress, and, and why is it that voters' moderate views are not represented. And, and we've, we've had some discussion on this show about that, but I think more research and more discussion is needed on that front. I agree. That's where I sit as well, is that this underscores like a deep puzzle, because I think there is a lot of vitriol in our national kind of elite-level politics. There is a lot of polarization, and uh, it, which leads to all kinds of pathologies. And yet this is, as you say, another paper that's underscoring that there are a lot of pragmatic moderates who, who would like to see some alternative to what's going on, and yet their commitments and sensibilities aren't being attended to. So why is that? Um, particularly when we add the piece that, well, those, the subset, that small subset of people who run on moderate campaigns actually are more likely to win. How is it that we can, we, the, these, these multiple truths be sort of sustained in equilibrium. That's, that's the puzzle. So um, let's, in future episodes, let's, let's, try to, let's try to kind of scratch at that problem and see what we can come up with. But this was a terrific paper. Thank you, um, Anthony, for, for talking to us about it.
Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.